On. We're resuming where we left off uh, in November last year as we've been uh, working our way bit by bit through uh, these first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And as we uh, do, as we resume and pick, pick things up again here in Exodus 32, I want us to remember a couple of things, a few things. Firstly, let's uh, briefly remind ourselves of the correct way to interpret an Old Testament passage, but in particularly how to apply that to ourselves. The popular way and the wrong way is to look at these stories and to identify the the life and the faith of the heroes and identify ourselves with them so that we can follow their example and achieve what they achieved or have the same kind of relationship with God that they had. So often the stories in Exodus then might be presented as stories about Moses and how we are to uh, be like him in some way. However, we're not supposed to identify with the heroes, but with the people, with the Israelites. Uh, As we'll see in a moment, the heroes are there to point us to Jesus. See what Paul says when, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he applies this story to Christians. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's the cloud that led them through the wilderness. They all passed through the sea, all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And you recognise that from our reading this morning, that, that phrase. What should be confronting to us about this passage is Paul's not speaking to the pagans in their temples worshipping physical idols. He's speaking here to Christians who still have that temptation, that pull to uh, put their faith in idols and not in Christ. So as we'll see shortly, uh, Moses points us not to ourselves but to Jesus to get an idea of who we are. We need to look at these Israelites. We need to see ourselves in them. The other thing I want to remind us of this morning is really the story so far. Um, Yep, leave it there for the moment. So, the story of Exodus so far. The Lord called and sent Moses with his brother Aaron by his side to be the deliverer of Israel out of the land of slavery in Egypt. When he first spoke to the elders of Israel about this call and when he confronted Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, 
He demonstrated that the Lord was with him by a number of signs, miracles. A stick turned into a snake. A healthy hand turned leprous. Fresh water turned into blood. These were all warnings of the judgments that would come upon Egypt if Pharaoh didn't obey the word of the Lord and let his people go. Then, after Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he didn't let the people go, came the plagues, the ten plagues. Each of them was a direct attack on the gods of Egypt. In each, the Lord showed himself to be greater and more powerful than the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. In these plagues, the Israelites were miraculously protected and that culminated in the final tenth plague when the firstborn of every family in Egypt right up to Pharaoh himself died except for the Israelites who had sacrificed the lamb and painted the blood on their door frames. As the Israelites left Egypt they were able to take whatever they wanted from their Egyptian neighbours And then the Lord appeared to them in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, leading them out. And he brought them to the banks of the Reed Sea, the eastern edge of the Egyptian territory. But they were hemmed in with the sea on one side and the pursuing Egyptian army on the other side. The pillar of cloud and and fire shifted to create a barrier between them and the pursuing Egyptian armies. And the Israelites were in daylight while the armies were in darkness. Then the Lord sent a wind that pushed apart the waters of the sea so the people could cross on dry land. And then when the armies tried to pursue them, the waters returned and drowned them. And it prompted this famous A song of Moses, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God and I will exalt him. So now free from Egypt, they began their journey towards the promised land via Mount Sinai, the the mountain where the Lord had first appeared to Moses in that burning bush. On the way to Sinai, they ran out of water and the Lord provided for them by turning a bitter spring fresh. Then they ran out of food and so he sent manna, bread from heaven. Then when again they ran out of water, he caused water to flow from the rock. Then they were attacked by the Amalekites, but the Lord enabled them to defend themselves. And finally they arrived and they camped here at the foot of Mount Sinai and they saw the Lord come down on the mountain, a thick cloud with fire and thunder and lightning and earthquake and a trumpet blast. Moses and Aaron, the priests and the 70 elders 
were called up into this cloud and in what really was the greatest miracle and wonder of all, they saw the Lord and they ate and drank with him. It was a covenant ratifying meal. They ate and drank with the Lord himself. So from day one up to this point, over several months, the Israelites have witnessed this unbroken chain of miraculous, mighty acts of God. Each of them designed to demonstrate that he is the Lord. And so we're told in Exodus 14.31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So what's going on here then? Why do they now not believe? The problem wasn't that they'd forgotten the miracles. It was that they were no longer convinced that these miracles could be attributed to the Lord as opposed to some other God. See, people in the ancient world had no problem in believing in the supernatural. They believed that the gods of the nations were much more than just uh, fictional products of people's imagination, but were actually representative of real spiritual realities and powers that were at work and are at work in the world. So for them, the question wasn't, as it often is today, does God exist? The contest wasn't between atheism and religion because everyone was religious. All of the nations believed that when they went to war, the fight wasn't just between the people, but it was between the gods that the people worshipped. And so whenever a battle was won, they could triumphantly declare that their God was more powerful than the gods of their enemies. And that was the whole point of the plagues, wasn't it? That the, the so-called gods of Egypt were powerless against the Lord who is the creator of heaven and earth. Miracles, signs and wonders aren't given to prove God's existence as we might tend to think of them today. Rather, they're a, a demonstration of God's supreme power over and above all other gods, showing them up to be weakless, uh, weak and powerless against him. The big question for the Israelites then wasn't, is there a God? It's which Which one of the so-called gods, the many gods that are around us, is the true and living God? And more importantly, is the true and living God our God? Now, believing that God exists obviously is important. And it's actually the first part of true faith as Uh, Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
So obviously we must believe there is a God, but see how there's this all-important second element of faith. Believing that he rewards those who seek him. This is the personal dimension of faith. It takes it from being mere belief to being genuine trust. Knowing God exists is an intellectual assent that anyone might have. But it's not just knowing that God exists. It's knowing that the God who exists is the God who can be known and the God who wants us to know him. That's what makes faith complete. That's what makes faith a personal relationship. Faith doesn't just say there is a God, but it says this is my God. I am his. I'm one of his people. I'm one of his children. So, back to the Israelites at Sinai. The issue wasn't what they believed intellectually, but to whom their hearts were devoted. Who did they worship? They knew that the God, Yahweh, the Lord, they knew this God existed, but they began to question, is it really Yahweh who brought us out of Egypt? Is it really Yahweh who will take us into the promised land? They began doubting whether this Yahweh was worthy of their worship. And that's the critical issue. But had every reason to trust, having seen his mighty acts, having heard his word so far through Moses, there was no shortage of evidence. The problem wasn't with the Lord and the effectiveness of his communication. It wasn't that he hadn't fully revealed enough of himself yet. The problem was in their own hearts. John Calvin wrote, The human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. The human mind, stuffed full of its own self-importance, creates gods in its own image. People substitute vanity and imaginary ghosts for the one true God. Not only do people imagine false gods in their minds, but they have the audacity to then make physical images of these gods. The mind conceives of the idols and people's hands give birth to them. Our everyday experience shows us that our flesh is restless until it sees some image of God which looks like itself, as in it looks like our flesh. Therefore, people regularly create visible images to worship. At the very heart of sin lies idolatry. We may tend to think of sin as breaking the rules, that we somehow make ourselves sinners by committing sins. And the more sins we commit, the worse a sinner we become. And that's why today most people struggle to see themselves as sinners. That's why people are especially offended by Christians who tell them that they're sinners 
and that they deserve God's eternal judgment in hell. It's the most offensive thing you can say in today's culture. But see, we live in a civilised society, a society that has at its base moral and ethical principles that have been shaped by the Christian faith. And most people tend to live by a lot of these biblical principles even when they have no idea that it's the Christian faith that has given these principles to them. Most people, if you ask the question, are you a good person, will answer yes. Because they haven't done anything really wrong, like murder. And those things that they have done wrong, they think, well, technically, at least they're not on a scale that would require God to be angry with me for eternity. We think that we can add up our sins and calculate ourselves how serious they are and then counterbalance them with a bigger tally of the good things that we've done. Being good citizens, not causing harm to anyone, contributing to charity or social welfare. We will always come up with a longer list of the good than of the bad. But that's not the heart of sin, adding up how many sins you've committed. The greatest commandment, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength. Anything other than that is idolatry because we've redirected our love away from the one true God and onto something or someone else. So unless a person is obeying this first great commandment, no amount of adherence to rules and regulations means anything. God is offended by someone who comes to him with a claim of self-righteousness, boasting in what they have done, but whose heart is far from him. So that's why it didn't take long for the Israelites to turn to idolatry. Did you see the real irony that's presented to us here in this story? Moses is up on the mountain, he's in the presence of the Lord and he's receiving from the Lord the tablets of the testimony. These tablets were a physical sign of the covenant relationship between the Lord and his people, his pledge to them to be their God and the requirements of how they are to live within the bounds of this covenant, the Ten Commandments, the basis of the law. The Lord was giving them a physical, tangible sign of his relationship with them, but it wasn't an image. It wasn't a picture or a statue of himself. It was his word. So they would know him, not as they saw an image, but as they read and heard his word. They would express their faith in him as they heard and obeyed his commandments. 
So faith would come not by seeing an image, but by hearing the word. So we're told in verse 16, the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And note that word, engraved. Because down at the foot of the mountain at the same time, there was another work of engraving going on. Aaron took the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. This work of engraving produced an image, a representation of a God that people could then bow down to physically and pay homage to, but without needing to hear its word of command. It's the little creation that just does whatever you tell it to do because it's made in your own image. It was a God that could be bribed and manipulated to suit their own desires, to give them what they felt they needed without any obligation on their part to live in a particular way. So as long as they bribed this God with sacrifices, it would look after them. And that's the way all of the nations operated with their gods and idols. We bribe our gods and hope that they might, in return, be nice to us. So what a stark contrast. It's a contrast not so much between forms of worship, but how the form of worship betrays the orientation of our hearts. Do we trust in the work of God, spoken in his written word, by which he makes us his people, or will we trust in our own work as human beings, we who fashion with our own hands God's that we can manage and control? Do we, do we crave the visual and the tangible and the experiential signs and wonders, subjective and emotional experiences, impressive displays of power or performances, which, as we've already seen, none of those things that were from God, but none of them were sufficient to hold the hearts of the Israelites. Or are we satisfied in hearing Jesus' words when he said, it is written, and to come humbly to hear God speak, trusting that it is through his word, read and heard and taught and proclaimed and sung, his word. It's through that that the Spirit brings the reality of the crucified, risen Jesus to transform our hearts and our minds and our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. The idolatry craves the visual, some kind of image that makes our worship simple and easy and enjoyable and gives us a sense of satisfaction because We've done all the right things and gone through all the right motions and the rituals. But faith, faith means hearing God's word 
and believing and trusting him even when it seems from time to time that the external evidences don't always match what he's saying. That's a faith modelled for us by Abraham. Remember, Abraham heard a word from the Lord that he and Sarah would have a son even though they were elderly and their bodies were as good as dead. All Abraham had to go on was God's word. Yet faith in God's word was all that was required for God to count him as righteous and to enable him then to patiently wait until God's word of promise actually came true. So as we saw in Paul's application, sorry I haven't got it up there, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I want to highlight three things from this story that show us just the foolishness and the inherently deceptive nature of idolatry. Firstly, see Aaron's response to Moses. Trying to explain why he had done this. He says, you know these people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, See, an idolatrous heart will be self-justifying. When I try to justify myself, not only do I try to take credit for the good that I've done, but I'll also explain away and minimise the bad that I've done. Aaron says, it's the people's fault. They made me do it. It sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? Remember when Adam said... The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then Eve, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, an idolatrous heart is a master at deflecting responsibility. The devil made me do it. I do it because I'm a victim of someone else's actions. It's the way I was brought up. I can't help it. So to justify himself, Aaron, he mixes truth with lies. He admits to putting the gold into the fire under pressure from the people, but then he claims that the calf just miraculously emerged from the fire. We know the truth. He actually fashioned it by his own hands with an engraving tool. So idolatry involves self-justification and will will even try to deceive others in trying to appear righteous in what we're doing. Secondly, see Aaron's words there in verse 5. After building an altar to make sacrifices before the calf, he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And he uses there the The word Lord there is Yahweh, it's God's personal name. He tries to convince himself and others that this idolatrous worship of a calf is actually worship of the Lord. The idolatry can be dressed up 
and described in very respectable ways. It's so deceptive that we can even convince ourselves that our idolatry is true worship. I just gave a throwaway line earlier where I said that thing on my finger is just an idol. We should never say that. The power of idolatry captures our hearts, but we trivialise it. We think, oh, it's just a little thing. It's not going to draw our hearts from pure worship of God. It's possible to come to church, to go through all of the motions, claim to be worshipping Christ, yet in our hearts we are devoted to our idols. It's possible for a church to have a facade that appears to be Christian but is actually idolatrous because we look to the visual and the experiential instead of to the Word of God as it's preached and taught and spoken and sung. When I was recently phoned by a man who was interested in coming to our church to check out a new church, the first question he asked wasn't, do you believe in the Bible and how do you go about teaching the Bible? But his first question was, do you have a music team? See, a lot of what is called worship today is actually more self-worship than it is worship of the Lord because it's more about my own personal audio-visual experience than it is about being built up by the Word and being equipped for service of Christ. So idolatry involves self-deception and will ultimately be focused on ourselves, not on God. Thirdly, there's this conversation that happens between Moses and Joshua as they're coming down the mountain. They hear the sound of the people and they're trying to work out what's happening. Now Joshua is a military man, so he interprets it as the sound of war, either the shouting of victory or the cry of defeat. It seems that what they were hearing had a sense of discord or confusion. Moses says, no, it's, it's the sound of singing. But he uses a word for singing that's often associated with pagan worship and worldly celebration that is often chaotic and uh, out of hand. And his assessment then is confirmed when he comes down and he hears the singing and he sees them dancing. Now singing and dancing in themselves aren't sinful. Singing and dancing was used in Israel's worship later on from the time of David onwards. But singing and dancing weren't prescribed, they weren't required in the law. And it wasn't part of the worship in the tabernacle before the time of David. So what's likely happening here is that the Israelites are copying the kind of worship that they would have seen and maybe even participated in back in Egypt. Moses had just received the law of God and he knew what true worship was supposed to look like and this was not it. So idolatry will produce worship 
but it will be a worship that resembles the world, not the worship that God requires. We were told back in 1 Corinthians 14 that true worship of God is to be done decently and in order. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Idolatrous worship seems to be, uh, seeks to be pleasing and acceptable to the world instead of pleasing and acceptable to God. Finally, I want us to look briefly at Moses' intercession for Israel before the Lord and we'll actually look uh, more into this next week. As we saw at the start, we are to identify ourselves with the people of Israel to see in their idolatry, our idolatry, in their sin, our sin. But just as the people are a picture of us, so is Moses a picture, a type or a shadow of Jesus. Moses, the deliverer, raised up by the Lord to rescue his people from captivity, from slavery and to bring them into the land of freedom. It's a picture of Jesus. Remember what we saw, they were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all drank the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. They were baptised into Moses but Moses was really pointing them to the reality who was Christ. So Moses comes before the Lord on behalf of the people and see how in verse 32 he points us to the work of Christ. Now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. God had said that their idolatry deserved them being consumed and that he would instead make a great nation out of Moses. But Moses offers to take their place, to have his name blotted out of the book so that they might be included. Now the Lord here is is not flip-flopping on his promises. He's not changing his mind. He's not beginning to regret his actions. If he said, okay, I'll make you my people. Oh, now I'm, now I'm not so sure. Or maybe if Moses prays hard enough, maybe I'll change my mind again. What he's doing is he's clearly stating what the people deserve, what their sins deserve. Just as he did when he said in Eden, the day you eat of the tree, you will die. As he did in the flood when he said, I will blot out humanity whom I've made from the face of the the earth. He does this in order to highlight his mercy. Because Adam didn't physically die on the day he ate. He lived to the age of 930. Humanity wasn't completely blotted out by the flood They were saved in Noah and his family. So here too God God states, he declares what justice demands 
but it's in order that his mercy may be seen for what it is, the action of pure, undeserved grace. So just as the Israelites point us to the reality of our own condition, idolaters at heart, who deserve the eternal wrath of God, so Moses points us to God's grace and mercy given to us in Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, who said to the Father, blot me out of the book that you have written so that these people may be written in. He came under the curse in our place. He was blotted out. He was given over to death and the grave in our place so that we might live. As we've been going through this passage, it may be that you've been able to identify in your own life those things, whether it's objects, whether it's ideas, whether it's hopes, whether it's people that are actually idols to you. Those things that you put more confidence in to try and receive from those things only the things that God can and should give you. Love and joy and peace and patience and hope and certainty and assurance. It may be that those idols, well, not maybe, those idols need to be crushed. They need to be ground into dust like Moses did with that golden calf and completely done away with. But that can only happen when we see Christ, when we see that he is our only Lord the one who has died for us, who has raised for us, who is reigning at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. We need to set our eyes on him and him alone if our idols are going to die. Let's pray.